Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany, both here in the sanctuary, also online. It's a joy to be with you as we bring to a close this series and enter into a new season beginning Wednesday night, a season of Lent, and I look forward to that as well. But uh, as we close first, John, I'll ask you to just take a moment and pray with me, and then we begin. Father, thanks that we can gather within these walls and listen for your voice and in a, in a world that is so broken and so scarred and uh, so dark and so hopeless. None of us are immune from the intrusions of pain and the fall. And yet you offer us some hope. So I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us of that hope today in a realistic way and that we'd be open to receiving that hope, and not only receiving it, but embodying that hope in order that we might shine as light in this world, Father. We'll thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Just about a year ago, uh, Ukraine was invaded by Russia. I was actually speaking over in Austria the week right after this invasion occurred, and there were Romanian guests at the retreat and some German guests who were already caring for Ukrainian refugees. And what was interesting among some of these Romanians is some had relatives in Russia and would call home and say, oh, why are you bombing these villages? And then uh, the Russian family members would say, there, there is no bombing. There is no invasion. There is no war. Watch the news. And then they would say, we're watching the news, and we're dealing with refugees who are fleeing into Romania, coming across a border. Don't tell us this isn't happening. It is happening. You're lying. I mean, I haven't heard this once. I've heard it half a dozen times from Ukrainians, uh, Americans who have Russian family members, uh, and Romanians. And it's just one example of... Uh, the, the challenge of our moment, which I'm calling an epistemological crisis, and the word epistemology simply means how do you know something is true? And it's, we're in a crisis because we don't know. Election results aren't believed. News isn't believed. If you say something that you learned on the news, many people will respond by saying, well, which, which station were you listening to? And then, depending on your answer, it's fake news, right? And then it's just dismissed outright. This is really hard. History is viewed with suspicion in this moment in time. Government is viewed with suspicion because politicians have on occasion lied. <laughs> Churches are viewed with suspicion because pastors preach one way and then it's discovered that they're living a different way. Even in the realm of sports, there's more distrust now among coaches and trainers because of the sexual abuse crisis. So when someone says something, when you read something, there's kind of this question on the table, well, how can you know? And here we are this morning, gathered in church of all places, and 1 John chapter 5 says over and over and over again, we can know. By this we know. 
And in fact, we're kind of basing everything this morning on verse 13 of 5. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So this big question, what is knowable, is answered in our time this morning with this threefold knowing that enables us to live as people of confidence and hope right in the midst of a broken world. We can know that the sin pattern in our lives is broken by being begotten of God. Second, uh, we can know that this world is under the power of the evil one. And third, we can know truth because Christ has come. So there's three knowings that we're considering this morning. The context of this, of course, is verse 13, which says, uh, I've written these things to you who believe so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this phrase, eternal life, uh, we tend to think of as, oh, that's good news. When I die, I'm going to go to heaven, right? And we think of eternal life as kind of this destiny and, and quantity of life. But the phrase actually means life for the ages. And what it, what it really means is that eternal life you know, has come now and invaded you. So you have kind of this qualitative distinction in this moment. You have a life that will not only live forever, but that will live forever as the embodiment of shalom and hope and beauty and justice and mercy and intimacy with the creator. All of that stuff is embodied in this phrase, eternal life. And John is saying, I've written so that in spite of everything in your life, your, your cancer, your loss, the infidelity you've suffered, the infidelity you've perpetrated, your victimization, the reality of living in a fallen world, the rise and fall of government, fake news on some channel anyway, because they're contradictory. <laughs> I've written so that you can know that you have today a life for the ages, a life worth living, a life that can bring hope to other people. You want that? Stick around. That's what we're talking about this morning. Three knowings create that knowing that we have eternal life. And the first of those, we know the sin pattern is broken by being begotten of God. That's verse 18, right? So let me just read this. We know that no one who is born of God or begotten of God sins. Now, I particularly asked this morning that the New American Standard Version be read in this text. And the reason I asked is because in some translations, you would read it this way. No one who is born of God practices sin or continues to sin. But if you had a Greek Bible in front of you and you read it, it this is what it would read. No one who is born of God sins. We don't like that because it doesn't match up to our experience so we retranslate, right? So I pretend, we're gonna, we're, I'm not going to preach now. Now you're in a Bible class with me, right? We're in Europe somewhere, the whiteboard. And I say, let's deal with this. There's a mystery going on in First John. What's the mystery? Well, in First John 1, 8 through 10, John says this. If you say you have no sin, you're lying. You're deceiving yourself. You're making God a liar. Of course you have sin. And then the call, confess your sin. So, okay, on the one hand, I, okay, I sin. So I sin. But then, in 1 John 3, verse 9, here we go again. 
No one who is begotten of God practices sin because God's seed abides in him. And then listen to this. Again, in the literal, this is what you read. He cannot sin. Cannot sin. What? You just told me if I said I have no sin, I'm deceiving myself. And now you're telling me I can't sin. Which is it? Yes. Right? Both these things are true. How could both things possibly be true? Well, here's the deal. Um, What it says is that which is born of God cannot sin. And then in 1 John 3, 9, that is explained to us. It says God's seed abides in him or in you. So here's the deal. That which is born of Christ can't sin. In other words, uh, proposition A, if I had a whiteboard, I'd write it down. Christ was born of God and therefore not able to sin. Second, Christ's nature is the source of our born again. In other words, when you, when you were born again, like what does that even mean? That means that this new life came and took up residence in you. God's spirit joined with your spirit. So that's the base of your new birth. And so now, since you share in Christ's nature in your spirit, your spirit cannot sin. Uh, In other words, there's a part of you that isn't able to sin. It's your spirit, which is begotten of God, born from above. That's why Paul says, walk by the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. In other words, if I'm, if at any given moment, if, if, if it's the Spirit of God, the resurrection of life of Christ, that's kind of empowering me in that particular moment, in that moment, what I'm displaying will not be sin, it will be Christ. That's incredible to me. Because what it says to me is I have this capacity at any given moment to be the presence of Jesus in a situation. It gets very practical. First of all, by way of practicality, this means I have a new identity. And of course, this is the meaning of born again or born from above. This new identity, my life in Christ, uh, delights in intimacy with God, enjoys peace and contentment and confidence. My new identity has no striving, no lust, no pride, no easily injured ego. This new identity is complete in Christ, Colossians 2.9. And so if I live out from this new identity... If that's the animating source of my actions in this moment, I'm not sinning. That's the way it works, right? You're able to overcome. So what enables you to overcome? Well, Romans 8 says, the law of life in Christ. In other words, living my life out from the base of Christ. When I'm out from the base of Christ, I'm set free from the law of sin and death. So if it's Christ, I can't sin. Because Christ can't sin. So how do I overcome my sinful tendencies? Well, feeling bad about sinning is not going to help me overcome anything. I'll just feel bad. Second, making resolutions by doing better next time is also not going to help me. And of course, this is a common pattern among Christians, right? We blow it in some tangible way. And then, you know, we come here on Sunday and get kind of a, like a Jesus shot. And we're like, oh yeah, I shouldn't blow it that way. I'm done with that. <clears throat> then we go home, we blow it again, come back, 
go back, come back, go back, up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain. And pretty soon we get pretty frustrated by this. This is not the life for which you're created. So making resolutions doesn't help. More discipline doesn't help. Changing the price tags and calling sin not sin doesn't help. Right? It's not, it's not lying. It's uh, um, helping. It's merciful <laughs> to not tell the truth. It's not, it's not, it's not lust. It's, it's enjoying beauty. It's not, it's not anger. It's honesty. Hello? It's sin. So how, do you, how are we set free is the question. And the, and the answer is pretty simple to say, <laughs> live by the power of the Spirit. If you walk in the Spirit, you cannot sin. So what this does for me practically is it sets me free from what I call sin management and instead offers me freedom. And so you're at a crossroads here this morning. Am I going to leave here? And, and seek to live as a follower of Christ through the tactic of sin management or freedom. What, is sin, what do I mean by sin management? Well, if I'm operating under sin management, let's say that there's this big shiny sin here, and this is only hypothetical. iPads aren't inherently sinful, but you understand, right? This is a big shiny sin. Here I am. I'm, I'm bored. I'm angry. I'm hurt. Here's a way of kind of self-medicating. Are you with me so far? This, oh, this will feel good. And so I'm drawn to this. It's alcohol. It's, it's illicit sexual activity. It's pornography. It's anger. It's spending. It can be, you know, ice cream. It can be potato chips. It can be pride. It can be self-righteous, you know, online. All of that. There it is. I know it's wrong, but I want it really badly. That's sin management. And then I'm like this, I will not. You know, you shall not pass. And I go this way, and, and I'm, now I'm choosing a different path, right? But I really want that path. That's sin management. Because when I'm free, I'm so rooted and grounded in my true identity that my true identity sees that, recognizes it as a, as a shiny thing, but I don't even want it. Are you with me? So now it's much easier to go this way. And all of us in the room, I hope, have had at least a taste of freedom where that which was tempting yesterday is not tempting today. And what's the difference? Not more self-discipline, not better resolutions, not trying harder, new identity. Like you are living out from Christ and that sets you free. Sin management is all about no. Freedom doesn't start with no. Freedom starts with yes. Say yes to Christ. And when I say yes to Christ, like I automatically turn from this toward this. So sin management creates these cycles of shame and recommitment or cycles of frustration that become so intense that eventually people walk away from the faith entirely Freedom, on the other hand, deals with sin this way. When I sin, I'm not surprised. Why? Because that's what my flesh does every time. Sometimes my sins look socially respectable, like preaching out of ego. <laughs> Sometimes my sins are socially unrespectable, and they're hidden. But if it's from the flesh, it will be sin. 
And if it's from the Spirit, it will lead to life. And that's what's going on here. John says uh, in verse 18, we know no one born of God sins. So live today in accordance with your truest identity. Live as one born of God. Because there are far too many people seeking to follow Christ through a paradigm of sin management, and that is unsustainable. It's part of the reason that churches are in decline, uh, in attendance, in in, uh, the West, essentially. And I have many conversations with pastors with people who say my faith doesn't work. I've tried it, it didn't work. What you've tried is sin management, and that doesn't work. What does work is living out from this new identity. So Paul, Paul, John is saying, look, become rooted and grounded in this new identity because to the extent that you know that you're born of God, you're motivated to live out from that. And when you live out from that, you're set free from sin. This is for me, very practically, why meditation is such a valuable asset in my spiritual disciplines. Every morning, you find me sitting after some coffee and a little bit of reading scripture, you know, inhaling and exhaling and, and reminding myself that I am rooted and grounded in love. And I picture, just as we saw a video recent, just a few minutes ago of a tree being painted, I picture a tree drawing upon all these resources, the resources of life that are in the soil, because as the tree draws upon those resources, it is given capacity to reproduce. But without the roots, there's no method of receiving the life that can be passed on. You are rooted and grounded in Christ's love. That's your identity. So so we want to start there and know that we're born of God. One of my favorite authors says that for her, the most valuable asset of salvation is knowing that she has this brand new identity that is already complete. Because she's like this. It's, it's, that, it's that spirit that's united with Christ. I know that that spirit will in the end prevail. And so I'm able to seek to live out from that. And when I fail, I return to that. It's my homepage. My identity in Christ is my homepage. So that's the first truth. We can know that we're born of God. And I pray that we go out, here to, out of here today living out from that quiet confidence that we're completing Christ. Second, we know that the world is under the power of the evil one. Now, this is very hard. Uh, there are people in the room who watch Hallmark movies, and there are people in the room who don't, right? <laughs> people who mock that. And the mockers are like this. And I'm one of them, I confess to you. (laughs) Give me five minutes of looking, I know how it ends already. Right? Because there's there's always a dissonance. But the good news in the Hallmark movie is the dissonance is like it always ends. Right? She sees the light or he sees the light or they see the light. And then, you know, and then they come together and it's confession and reconciliation and bliss and happily ever after and all that good stuff. It's all there. And so people watch that because the world is horrible. I get it. But I don't, I watch some movies like that, but I I like to not know how it's going to end. And the reason is because I live in a world 
where on a daily basis, I'm assaulted with the reality that uh, our world is in the hands of the evil one. I want to believe it's not that way. I, I've watched movies more than once, and it's a movie. It's, it's like permanent. It's embedded in the pixels or whatever. I know he's going to die again. And I still don't want him to die. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, we want to believe that it works out. Here, we're told, hey, if you want to live as a person of wisdom, know that the world is in the power of the evil one. What does that mean? Well, that means that Cain killed Abel. It's by the fact that there were uh, no social media at the time and no technology and no shopping malls or... Instagram to give you body image issues. Without any of that, Cain killed Abel. The problem isn't the culture per se. It's in us, right? History tells us that when it comes to humans, like will gather with like. It'll be the same political party or the same nation or the same skin color, same religion. And then that group will go to great lengths to create a power base and protect and expand that power base. And that will result in a long and painful history of empires. Empire after empire. Egypt becomes Assyria, becomes Babylon, becomes the Medes and the Persians, becomes the Greeks, becomes the Romans, becomes the Spanish Empire, the British Empire, the Austria-Hungarian uh, Empire, the Third Reich, the Soviet Empire, the Communist Empire, uh, you know, Pol Pot, Rwanda, empires appropriate land, empires enslave, empires oppress, empires are based on us and them and deny the reality the other is made in the image of God, empires have winners and lo- uh, losers. Empires are selfish. History also tells us that being the people of God doesn't grant us immunity from these evils. Judah sold his brothers a slave and slept with his daughter-in-law. Book of Judges describes a group of people who have direct access to God's uh, revelation with God as their king. And in spite of this, they're characterized by complacency, greed, sexual and physical violence that's so bad the Bible would be banned as a book if it wasn't the Bible. (laughs) And then look at the history of the church. Slavery in Jesus' name. Colonialism in Jesus' name. Cultural genocide in Jesus' name. Pedophilia and sexual abuse within the church. Spiritual abuse within the church. Claiming Jesus and using God words doesn't mean that we rise above the reality that the world is under the power of the evil one. It's the way it is. I just watched a movie that caused me to lose sleep called A Hidden Life. And the reason I lost sleep is because it's about an Austrian farmer during uh, the uh, ni- early 1940s who's drafted into Hitler's army, and you're supposed to swear a loath of loyalty, loyalty uh, to Hitler, and he won't do it. And he asks his pastor, um, Should, I, I can't do this, and his pastor says, you must do this. God's nation is Germany. And he asks his mayor, and his mayor says, you must do this. God's nation is Germany. And then he refused to swear loyalty to Hitler because he said, I have only one king, and that's Jesus. And as a result, he was arrested and tortured and ultimately beheaded. And I wondered how much of this is true, so I did a little research, and I found out not only was it all true, but in the small village, the husband was arrested, and the rest of the family was socially ostracized and cut off from the fellowship of this little village for 47 years. No no restoration until 1993. 
what kind of a world is this? And why is the church so often complicit? Here's the problem. The world is in the power of the evil one. And this applies to all of us because as David Brooks says, the line between good and evil doesn't run between good people and bad people. It runs through each of us. It's not that I'm good and you're bad. It's that I have the spirit and I have the flesh and you have the spirit and you have the flesh. And when the flesh prevails and then multiplies, we get personal sin, we get systemic sin, we get slavery, racism, oppression, mass shootings so common now that it's second page news. That's our world. Be tempting in such a world to just get you know, so dark and cynical that we're done with it and we just want to withdraw. But right in the midst of that, what does Jesus say? Your calling is to shine as light in the midst of this darkness. And when you bring reconciliation in a world overflowing with pain and sorrow and injustice, when light shines, that moment of reconciliation has eternal value. Christ within me I'm called to be light. There were nothing's wasted. Is it a dark world? Yes. So go shine a light. There's a little poster in my room that says, instead of cursing the darkness, light a candle. So tired of my own cynical heart when God has called us to be people of light. And here's the last thing real quickly. We're, uh, we're able to know truth because Christ has come. Our foundational liberating truth is right here. Christ has come so that we may know him who is true. Like we began with this epistemological crisis. How do we know what's true? And what's incredible to discover here is that truth ultimately is not an ideology or a set of doctrinal propositions. Truth is a person. And, and because the person is knowable, truth is knowable. And not only knowable, but Jesus said this, if you abide in me, if you know me, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So uh, I just want to give you a little exhortation here. Like, if we're made to know God, right? Verse 20, we can know him who is true because Christ has come. If we can know God, and that's our goal, then we want to be people who are looking every day, looking for the revelation of Christ. Because Christ is revealing himself to us in many ways. Certainly, yes, in the text. So study your Bible, read your Bible, listen, but don't confuse the text with Jesus. You're not looking for textual knowledge. You're looking for Christ. So we look for Christ in the text. We look for Christ in fellowship. We look for Christ on a, on a plane when we're in conversation. We look for Christ in creation, whether we're on the ski lift or in the garden. We look for Christ... Uh, in, in, in uh, companionship with other people when we, when we throw a party. We look for Christ everywhere so that we may know him better. And when we look, we find Christ. And when we find Christ, we become even more deeply rooted. And when we're more deeply rooted, Christ is revealed even more. So we're always looking for Christ and then this brings me to a really stunning conclusion. Because the end of the book, he's just given us these, these no's, right? Uh, and they're all, they're all significant. 
Know that the sin pattern is broken by being begotten of God. Know that the world lies in the power of the evil one. Know that uh, truth has come because Christ has come. And then it ends this way. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Hello? What are you talking about? How does that relate to anything you've just said? Well, here's the thing. It, it, it ties everything together. Why? Watch this. If my wife were right here, I'd be able to show you this better. I'm invited to know her, and that know, watch this, it's, it's a knowing that's predicated on both intimacy and fidelity. Are you with me? This, this knowing is a knowing where she knows me completely, I know her completely, and I'm committed to her only as, as this source of intimacy. So far, so good? So then when he says, guard yourselves from idols, here's what he's saying. Um, some of you want to know Christ as your source of meaning and comfort and direction. Some of you want to know Christ that way, but you're looking elsewhere also for meaning and comfort and direction. Are you with me? Oh, we want to know Christ. That's why we're here, of course. But uh, meaning, that's skiing. That's um, the mariners, may it ever be so. (laughs) That's, That's travel. That's my family. That's my marriage. Meaning, comfort, that's my health. That's my bank account. Direction, that's my political party. That's my news source. That's my counselor. Like, where are we looking? For meaning, comfort, and direction. Because if it's Jesus plus, the plus is an idol. God may give me the gift of comfort through skiing, but the source is God. God may give me the gift of direction through a counselor, but when I'm depending on those other sources, that's infidelity. And that becomes idolatry and ultimately prevents the light from shining. So interesting, there's a revival going on right now at Asbury University. I'm just going to close by reading a little bit of... uh, one journalist's assessment of this revival. Here's what he says, and I'm quoting, the movement of the spirit in Western evangelicalism has always unfolded in the middle of a cultural moment. Each of these historical movements reveals a unique trait. For example, the great Mount Hermon conference brought a fervor for the Great Commission. The Toronto Blessing brought overwhelming joy. The Brownsville Revival brought zeal for the lost. The Kansas City Revival brought acts of healing and awakening. The Azusa Street Revival brought a manifestation of tongues. I'm going to stop right here before moving on because I don't want you to miss the point for the story. In other words, don't get hung up. Oh, does Richard think Toronto was an amazing thing? Don't even worry about it. Everything's a little flawed 
including me and maybe you. I don't know. But what the author is saying is when the Holy Spirit is poured out, the fruit that is born speaks to the moment. In a moment of sickness, there's healing. In a, in a, in a moment of complacency, uh, there's passion for the lost. So what's going on now in Kentucky? Here's the journalist again. I find it interesting that God would mark this outpouring with, one, a tangible sense of peace for a generation facing unprecedented anxiety. Two, a restorative sense of belonging for a generation amidst an epidemic of loneliness. Three, an authentic hope for a generation marked by depression. Four, a leadership emphasizing humility for a generation deeply hurt by the abuse of religious power. What's going on right now? As the fruit of the Spirit in revival in Kentucky, peace, belonging, hope, and humility. And in this, in this epistemological moment, all across our country, what are we facing? Anxiety, loneliness, depression, and cynicism. We need exactly what God is doing there, here. How does that happen? Well, we know that we may know him. Intimately. When I, when I set my heart on knowing God alone as my source of security and comfort and direction, I name my idols, I declare I want to be done with those idols, and I'm looking to Christ alone. And when I look to Christ alone, the Holy Spirit is poured upon me and good things happen. So I'm going to ask you to do something with me this morning. I'm going to ask you to take just a, the bottom of your bulletin and rip a little piece off. And if God is speaking to you this morning about an idol that you need to name and set aside so that you may know him alone as your source of comfort and, and, and direction and meaning, I'm just going to ask you to name your idol on here and, and, and offer a prayer that God would revive you and that God would revive us. Would you just write it on here we did in the early service? Write it on here, come up here, and then even if you don't have something to name for you, you know that we live in a parched time, come on up and pray that God would pour his spirit out on us in this way so that we too would know hope and uh, humility and healing and community in a moment desperately thirsty for all these things. We name our idols, we pray for revival, we bring our notes up here. Let's worship together.